My guest today, Dr. Joan Rosenberg, is a best-selling author, consultant, media expert, and master clinician. She is a cutting-edge psychologist who is known globally as an innovative thinker. She's an acclaimed speaker and trainer, a two-time TEDx speaker, and a member of the Association of Transformational Leaders. She is also the author of the incredible book, 90 Seconds to a Life You Love, How to Master Your Difficult Feelings and Cultivate Lasting Confidence, Resilience, Authenticity, and it was released in 2019, not knowing that it was going to be a work for the ages as we moved into the classroom that was 2020. As I wanted to explore this concept of imposter syndrome, and as I I listened to people post about it online, and I listened to women talk about it in my practice, I could think of no one better than to help me unpack this concept and move through it and take you through it than the one and only Susan Hobson. Susan is an NLP coach. She works with executives. She works with athletes. She works with people who want to take their game to the next level. I really wanted her to rip apart this concept of imposter syndrome and the other things that we do to interrupt our capacity to impact and have influence on the world in a really big way. It is my pleasure to introduce you to my very good friend, Susan Hobson. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. Dr. Joan Rosenberg, welcome to the Anthropology Podcast. Joan, I'm hoping that you can uh, give my listeners just a little bit of a background and context as to why you are the absolute perfect person to take us through this conversation. My little story starts with uh, little Joan with uh, being a pretty doggone shy child and an introverted child and a sensitive one. And uh, I went through a lot of life, uh, my first, actually well into my teen years, kind of feeling that way and feeling like I didn't belong and didn't fit in and the whole thing and feeling different. And so my big question as a child, because I had such a challenge, was um, what is it that makes someone confident? Because I, at that point, I surely did not have it. And uh, me going and standing next to somebody or a group of people that that appeared to be confident was not going to happen through osmosis for me. So um, I found that the that didn't work. Uh, so that that really formed a lot of how I kind of entered the wor- world into my adulthood. And when I got into my professional life, I found that I was challenged by a kind of a second question. And that was what made it so difficult for people to experience unpleasant feelings. Because what I saw happening was that as much as one's thinking could create problems uh, for oneself, that one's difficulty handling unpleasant feelings made it even harder. And, And it turns out for me that that became kind of a life journey to to kind of unpack those two questions. And it turns out that the answer to the second question about unpleasant feelings became the foundational answer to the first question about how does someone develop confidence. So that's the short story. I want to get into the long story now because, <laughs> I mean, you are an accomplished TEDx speaker and the author of 90 Seconds of the Life You Love. And the first question I want to ask you, because you've got such a, a repertoire of, of knowledge and systems behind this, is what is the relationship between uncomfortable feelings and confidence? 
Well, that starts with actually me defining confidence. And the the way I've defined it is, <clears throat> excuse me, that confidence is the deep sense that you can handle the emotional outcome of whatever you face or whatever you pursue. So the the real if I'm going to highlight two words in that definition, it's emotional outcome. And and so what I found is that someone didn't feel capable in life and capable of negotiating what life throws at us, um, good good or bad, if you will, um, or what we might deem as bad. The that that if somebody didn't handle unpleasant feelings, which is the emotional outcome. Uh, then they were not going to be handling life very well. So uh, it, my work became centered around this body of my work came, became centered around eight unpleasant feelings. And, and so that's, that's really the, the link is that that's the foundational piece to confidence. Now there's other elements that contribute significantly to it. Um, but that's, that's really the first one, the foundational one. Welcome back to the Anthropology Podcast. I'm excited to have you here. You have this inescapable way of just throwing the truth down. And when the truth gets thrown down, there's really no choice but to pick it up. I really want to get into this one big concept and question. And, and that is the notion of imposter syndrome. So can we please unpack the notion of imposter syndrome? What the heck it is, how we get there, and then how we pull ourselves out of it so quickly. Believe it or not, I work with some titans in high performance. And most people are shocked when I tell them that a lot of these people actually come through my door, you know, for the first time with imposter syndrome, um, hitting the brick wall uh, because they're realizing that the success that they've achieved has, have, has really been created on a false foundation of self. So what do I mean by that, Meg? What, is that, what does that drum up in your mindset, uh, that terminology, a false foundation of self? Yeah, I think for me, sometimes I think, oh, well, maybe all of that success was just by accident. Like, maybe that was just the right day at the right time, but it, it wasn't because I actually had any skill that supported it. And I feel like that's what happens to me when I get caught in that uh, imposter syndrome mindset or place i'm like oh that was just luck and now i need skill and all those people have skill and they like maybe they had a bit of luck but they definitely got something that i don't and it's amazing how quickly we can go there yeah it is amazing and i think that um it can be a really great strategy when you're starting out. Um, I know specifically we're talking to clinicians. So as an entrepreneur, some aspect of just getting, you know, in the chair or in the office with a client or a patient is kind of just faking it till you make it right. Like it's really just, you don't really have tons of proof yet uh, when you're first opening your doors and getting to work. So I think that can be a great, you know, starting point, but it's definitely not a sustainable strategy for success. Like I said, a lot of times when I meet people um, coming through my door, it's because really they're, they're realizing despite all the wins, all the victories, you know, 10 or 20 years of building a business successfully, they still really just don't feel confident. Um, and that's because, you know, no amount of victories or, or wins or, or, you know, moments of success are enough when you're coming from a false foundation of self, meaning that you have a belief system or a mindset that you're faking it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that this is probably a lot of the times where the imposter syndrome comes from is that it's never good enough. Right. No matter how many times 
you know, you're, you're able to get that win if it doesn't count as a win, because there's always somebody else at the head of you on the track or somebody around you that doing it better, um, or has been in the game a bit longer, uh, you're always chasing it. And, and, and no amount of that, um, proof is ever enough to really create that strong foundation of confidence. How do we unpack it? What is the first thing that we have to do when we, when we catch ourselves being like, oh gosh, I'm not good enough compared to these people, or I'm totally faking it. Who am I to give that webinar or um, that keynote or any of those particular talks? First of all, who are you not to? You've got uh, an important message to spread. Like I just opened up our conversation today saying, whether I was at the start of the game as an entrepreneur or where I'm at right now, a decade into it. Yeah. I mean, I was on a mission to spread information that I had. So whether you're opening up your door for the first time or you've been doing it for a long time, we got to just really examine and unpack the mindset of what is enough. Like what, what does that even mean to be good enough? Right. Um, yeah, I think that's where the strong foundation of self com- comes from and should come from if it's going to be, you know, legitimate confidence. It's an intrinsic experience of what is enough for you. And what is, what is the goal for you? If you're constantly chasing those people around you who are doing it better or doing more of it or have been doing it longer, that's a goal you're never going to reach. So how the heck are you ever going to get that proof that your brain needs to actually start growing and solidifying your confidence? Mm-hmm. So it really is the mindset that I work on um, with this type of client, which is really just, you know, intrinsically knowing that the goal is always just you showing up and doing the very best that you can at whatever age and stage of of game you're at, of business you're at, of life you're at. It's just really just knowing who you are and knowing the value that you bring first day of business, 10, 10 years into it, like me, um, and just really intrinsically validating that as being, you know, the, the thing that you're going to bring to the table that really is valuable to the other person that's going to have that experience. How do we interrupt the yeah, buts? Because even as you're saying that I can picture, I can picture some of my clients who'd be listening to this and they're going, that's great. But I like that that is their psychology. That is the neuronal pathway for them. Every time a solution is thrown their way, they yeah, but it. So how do we like, how do we interrupt that? Because it's easier to build new neuronal pathways than it is to to break the old ones. So where do we go? Yeah, well, I think that if you uh, follow my work, you know that I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of calibrating language. Uh, any practitioner out there in service of patients or clients should be doing the same because I think, you know, that language really does show you where there's work to be done in that brain. Um, and if you are able to identify sort of the root of where that yeah, but self-talk is coming from, you're going to get at that limited belief system that really is um, the opportunity for growth in that patient, in that client's mindset, you know, and that's how you overcome it is you have to just really learn as a practitioner or clinician, how to navigate around those limited beliefs and how to really get at the root of where they're coming from so that you can challenge them and you can get past them because uh, the, yeah, buts, I mean, that's just your brain coming up with the limited proof that it really needs to challenge so that it can actually feel confident. The, the, mo- the moment you realize that life doesn't do something to us, your life can change. It's like life, life, it, we're co-creators with life. And, and a good many of us don't realize that. And, and we are at the level of awareness where we still think life is doing something to us. You believe that handling difficult feelings is the foundation of feeling confident and you have a formula to help people achieve that. And in my head, I'm like, 
Thank goodness. Because otherwise, we just left people with, oh, there's this opportunity and this mindset. Hope you can find it. Uh, I think that's a lot of pressure for people. So no, take us right. Take us through this formula because I was like, "Oh, guys, you all can have this." Yeah, totally. And and I what I want to say to that too, Megan, before I before I jump mm-hmm. into a lot, is that this whole confidence thing, and because it's broader than confidence, truly. But but what it dawned on me is that there's really a path to develop it. And when I when I was first starting out professionally. It's like I would, I knew I needed to develop it. I knew that others needed to develop it, but it was like, nobody's telling me how to help people do it. Right. Right. It's like, no, there's no manual that, that was there to do that. And the truth is the, my, the work that I did, there really is a path or there really is, uh, there really are a number of different things that you can do to help you understand the, the recipe for confidence. So, so let me jump into the first part of it, the foundational piece. So the formula is is uh, one choice, eight feelings, ninety seconds. And the a, a colleague of mine called it the Rosenberg reset. So I it, it, I kind of liked it, so it stuck. So it's that's consider that the Rosenberg reset. The, and the one choice is choosing into awareness, not avoidance. So you can think about all the different ways we avoid: food, screens, shopping. For men, it's often sex and pornography. For women, and you know, the shopping is often common, or the food is more common, um, or alcohol or other substances. So, I mean, the, and the list goes on because it it gets way more nuanced. Having feelings about having feelings is a way to describe, <laughs> right? Right. So, I, I can, and anxiety in my mind is a way to distract. Harsh self criticism is a way to be an avoidance. So, and we can jump into those pieces later, but the, the, the key thing here is to understand is that, that it's awareness that I'm asking somebody to lean into, not avoidance and not distraction. So that's the one choice. So it's being aware of and in touch with as much of your moment to moment experience as possible. And so let's go to the eight feelings. And the eight feelings are sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. Now, the first question someone's going to ask is, yeah, but anxiety and fear aren't there. And it's like, how come it's those eight? And and it's these eight, because in my world, they were the most common, everyday, spontaneous reactions to things not turning out the way that people wanted or the way that they felt like they needed it to happen. Mm. So it's the everydayness of the feelings. That's why these eight. And the 90 seconds part is really the, the method and it's the way to lean into the feeling itself. And the 90 seconds, there's there are two or three important pieces of information that, that are tied to that. The first is to understand we're one interconnected whole. We're not a brain and then a body, but we're, we're one interconnected whole. The second is to understand that most of us come to know what we feel emotionally through bodily sensation. So think embarrassment, for instance, and that when one gets embarrassed, most of us experience some kind of heat at the chest, into the neck, and then into the face. Now, somebody looking at us might see the redness, but we're feeling the heat, if you will, of the bodily sensation. And that's how we know we're embarrassed. But we, it's, it's, it happens so quickly, we don't think that we're relying on a bodily sensation to, to make that distinction 
or to name the feeling. And then the third part of this is to understand that when a feeling is triggered or when a feeling kind of fires off and it, then there's a rush of biochemicals into the bloodstream that actually activate those bodily sensations and those same biochemicals flush out of the bloodstream in roughly 90 seconds. So the, the important element to understand here is that a, a bodily sensation wave or a feeling, in other words, is short-lived. And, and so my thing is if, if one can ride one or more short-lived bodily sensation waves of one or more of eight unpleasant feelings, they can pursue anything they want in life. So that's, the, that's how you lean into unpleasant feelings. You ride bodily sensation, short-lived bodily sensation waves. And then it, that's the foundational piece of confidence. Once you do that, it, you will actually change your experience with yourself. Is there a new dialogue that we could engage in instead of saying, yeah, but? If you listen to the yeah, buts, you can really start to sense the emotion behind it is quite limiting, right? You can feel that that is language that is just going to close that person up and not give them the resources that they need to actually explore the possibility of what could be. So I think if you're looking for a quick tool, it's just a quick reframe on that, which is just, yeah, rather than, yeah, but how about what if, you know, I, lo I love that sort of uh, self-talk because it just opens up the brain to possibility when it's sort of a lead into thinking about like what could be possible if it was to be a bit more expansive and to be able to entertain the possibilities of, you know, what could come in the future rather than the limitations that are based on just not having that kind of proof. I'm curious whether it's a testosterone piece, because I feel like the barrier to entry for confidence is lower for men than for women. I think evolutionarily speaking, just where my brain goes is just, you know, men went out of the cave and had to be brave and courageous and go hunt and gather. And we had to be more of the nurturer, right? And more of the sensitive and the aware of other people's feelings so we could be in tune as mothers and caretakers and, right? Like, I think that um, that probably plays a role in it. I mean, you would know more than I would, but from a physiological standpoint, for sure. Whether you're male or female, it's just about owning who you are and the value you bring, like I said. And I think that... Um, yeah, I think it's a skill set. I think some of us have to work harder at knowing thyself than others, depending on, you know, what you've been exposed to and what's living and breathing in your mindset in regards to your self-concept. How do I start to, one, demonstrate this? Is there a different way of addressing it with kids, of, of getting their feet wet, as it were, in terms of sitting in these emotions? Because, man, the nine-year-old's emotions are, are intense. Um, yeah, well, one, I would actually teach them the, the idea that, that um, actually you could talk to your child about the intensity of the feeling, too. It's like when you, when you feel you feel big, you know, help me, help me understand what you're going through when you start to feel these big feelings or however you want to language it for it. The me, for me, it's actually just taking the concept and adopting language that fits that age group. Mm-hmm. And that's the first thing. And, and it's to, it's to help because a child can understand it. Um, it. You can, you know, there's a, there's a, an example of this one that people are teaching meditation, for instance, and they'll, they'll give an, young children 
<clears throat> excuse me, stuffed animals. <clears throat> and they'll ask the, the child to put the stuffed animal on their belly and, and to, and to practice deep breathing, they have to rock the stuffed animal to sleep. Hmm. So you, it's just a matter of, t- of taking the concept and then languaging it for that age group. And it's, it's helping them understand that the more they can learn how to um, experience what they're feeling and, and then make use of uh, kind of that, that when they stay with it, and this is, this is what I found is that when someone is able to stay with the feeling and actually kind of ride the, the bodily sensation wave. So I talk about it actually as, as like surfing on uh, body surfing or being in the ocean. And then that what you want to do is you want to ride the wave. And, and so the language for it is always about riding waves because with, with the ocean, the waves come in and they always subside and that that's true with feelings as well. We think they linger, but they linger for other reasons, or that's, that's the quality that it seems like it lingers, lingers for other reasons. And the truth is that feelings themselves are transient. They're short-lived. And so the first message to convey to children is that they're short-lived. When they can lean into them, they'll actually gain insights. And, and that we can then use our feelings to make decisions, to sp- potentially speak up and express ourselves or to take actions. The way I talk about it in the 90 seconds book is that there's three, to me, three main reasons that people have the experience that stuff lingers. So yeah. Cause by, if people always challenge me on that, it's like, come on, it goes on for days or months. <laughs> right. Right. So, so, and it doesn't feelings are the key is feelings are transient. You just have to remember that if they're short lived, but when we try not to think of the thing worth or when we try not to experience what we're experiencing, we make it linger longer. So it, so when we try not to know what we know, or that's one of the ways I talk about it, or we are trying to suppress our thinking about a given topic or experience, then the more we work to suppress it, the more it actually stays present. So that's what this, so thought, what people call thought suppression is one way that it makes that, that experience kind of linger. The second is, um, if we keep on repeating a certain thought or memory, so this is, and this ha- happens with breakups, mm-hmm. or this happens with situations where we think we've embarrassed ourselves, we keep on going back over and over and over and over the same doggone thought. Right. No, and, people don't do that, do they? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. It's <laughs> <laughs> only me that's experienced that. <laughs> so, so the when someone repeats memories or repeats thoughts. Then it's going to, that thought or memory is going to pull up everything that's associated with it, including the feelings. So the more you repeat, the more you keep on kind of refiring the approximate pattern that had just happened with the first time. And, and so that makes it feel like it lingers. And the third reason I believe is that people engage in harsh self criticism. Mm-hmm. And the harsh self criticism for me is a height, a thought hijack of unpleasant feelings. And every time you stay in the thinking of the harsh self-criticism, then you're making the the experience, the unpleasant feeling experience linger longer too. The, the use of harsh self-criticism is a distraction from unpleasant feelings. So think of harsh self-criticism as a distraction from those same eight feelings I mentioned earlier. And that, uh, and it, so it's a thought hijack. 
of our emotional experience. So the beauty of it is once you learn it, once you hear me say that, you can actually change it. Mm-hmm. And and I'm going to encourage those who engage in it to change it because I do think it is exponentially damaging to us. So it, it, the if you are familiar with what the Richter scale is like for the or for how they assess earthquakes, for me it's the Richter scale of damage. So the way the Richter scale works is that every tenth, one tenth, is not one tenth; it's ten times. There's a 10 times difference. So, so think of somebody who engages in hard self-criticism and every time they do it, it, they're just think of the exponential damage that one is doing to oneself. And, and that, so that the idea here is that hard self-criticism and unpleasant feelings are not equal. The, the, the hard self-criticism will sink you. And I happen to think that that actually might be the big contributor to suicide. That it's not unpleasant feelings that is the contributor. It's the harsh self-criticism that does people in. How do we work with people around mindset so that they are in a state of expansive thinking? Yeah, well, I think what I would do with with anybody um, as a starting point is just teach them to pay attention to how they feel. And really, I, I spend a lot of time with my clients teaching them how to calibrate their emotions because their emotions are valuable intel into their brain, into their belief systems, into their mindset. Um, really showing you if your your brain's conditioning and hardwiring is in support of you or in sabotage of you, right? So if people are stepping into a space and it feels constricted or it feels terrifying or it feels whatever it feels, you know, that's um, unresourceful then again, it's just really teaching them how to unpack those belief systems and giving them, you know, the skill set to be able to challenge them and create more empowering, resourceful stories. Because at the end of the day, it's that belief system that's going to predict how that result pans out. But yeah, I think it's, uh, it's teaching them the discipline of how to take ownership of their mindset, take responsibility for it. Because again, it's the thing that's running the show. Brain runs the show. Brain runs on patterns. Patterns are predictable. Um, I love to teach that and discipline that in my clients' thinking. It's really just teaching them how to get to the root of the mindset that they really need to train and, and hardwire in order to be congruent with the results that they want to achieve. So you said something there and I was like, oh, that's classic Susan Hobson in terms of just like throwing these accountability bombs um, in one's direction. And and you said they need to take responsibility for that, uh, for that mindset and for those patterns. Yeah. How do they do that? Like, I feel like, like it's one of those classic things of like, once you know better, you do better. So now everyone listening knows better. You have to take responsibility for your own, your own mindset. You're only allowed to sabotage yourself for so long before you have to step up and do something about it. Where do people start in terms of interrupting that? Does that mean 10 years of therapy to unpack their childhood? Or is there a good platform and starting point they need to go to? Heck no. That's why I got into NLP, which is my, uh, my expertise. It's the brain training I keep referring to. It's like really getting in there. Look, I work with high achievers. They don't have a lot of time. They want the results quickly, right? So it's just, um, yeah, it's teaching people how to get into that mindset and to be able to rearrange um, their thinking and, and their neural associations quickly so that they can have big impact quickly. But uh, accountability and responsibility, come on, guys, if you're 
in it to win it and you're here to play your biggest game, I mean, it, it starts there, right? I always say to my clients, uh, there's nothing better than taking responsibility and ownership for your results because it makes you responsible, mm-hmm. right? And I, this is what was really inspiring to me when I first, first got exposed to the power of this brain training stuff. It was showing me that, you know, my first year at Princeton, I arrived there um, not having the first damn clue as to what my belief systems were. Uh, I just knew that I was using strategies that I thought were working until I found out they clearly weren't <laughs> weren't sustainable uh, sustainable ones because they were out of my control. There's nothing more in control than than being able to take ownership of what's living and breathing in your head. And having the tools and the discipline to be able to align that and to hardwire that autopilot, 95% of your choices every day coming from that autopilot, to be able to align that with what it is that you're going after. I mean, if you are really on a mission, you take your, your purpose seriously, that means something very, very, very important to you, then you you want to take ownership and responsibility for this stuff because you know that that's going to be the biggest predictor of whether or not you're going to get there. And is having that clarity of purpose and where you want to go the first step to pulling through any of this mud that we're talking about? Oh my gosh, it's the step. I mean, it's the first step. It's exactly what I immediately get working on. The second you walk through my door, I get testing out your clarity. Um, Most people are shocked when I say this, but I'd say nine times out of 10, people don't know exactly what they want. Um, And that's the power of working with, you know, someone like yourself, someone like me, somebody who forces you to have to go there and create new neural pathways in your brain and to create new proof in your brain, right? To create new experience in your brain, experience that hasn't yet happened, but that you really say you want to happen. Um, Clarity is power for the brain. It needs those resources. If it's going to start developing these belief systems we've been talking about that empower you to take the the action towards making it happen. Um, Yeah, I think that that is absolutely the starting point for anybody who is going on a mission to achieve big things and play their biggest game. And do you have resources for people who are like, ah, I don't know. I don't know what I want. I don't know where I want to go. And I'm thinking it might be the new grad coming out of out of school. And maybe someone who's like, I want to be an entrepreneur, but I don't know what my my mission is all about. And I, I have some patients who are like, I've been trying to find that for 25 years. So do you have a, do you have an exercise or do you have a resource or do you have a place that you send people to start so that they are inspired to tap into that? Yeah, I think this is, um, again, what I got exposed to that I have now built a practice and a process based on that works extremely well um, for helping people realize their highest potential in any area, life, business, health, it's all the same, right? Um, The exercise and the starting point is just know thyself. It's really, really, really simple, you guys. Every single thing that you're going after in business and health and money and relationships, it all starts from a foundation of self and knowing who you really are and really getting clear in terms of that value that you bring, really getting clear in terms of what makes you tick in terms of what's most important to to you, your core values. Um, So yeah, I think the starting point is just to really see if you Yes, if you're like me, I had spent all my time going outside rather than inside, right? To get that validation of what was important. That was unfortunately, you know, 
the self-sabotaging path that my mindset was on because it developed these extrinsically motivated uh, strategies to gain confidence. I think the turnaround and the starting point is to go inward rather than outside to get to know yourself um, based on who you are, which is based on your values, your skills, your strengths, your talents, your attributes. Can you talk about the difference between happiness and inner peace? Well, inner peace is the happiness. So it's not, it's not, they're not different. So when, when I, when I think when someone is, when someone feels congruent within and they're allowing their, the genuine experience of whatever they experience to be present for them, that's again, that's the basis of congruence. So what do I mean by congruence? Uh, At the the minimum, it's four things that match at the, at the upper limit, it's more like eight things match, but the first four are that one's uh, actions match one's words and one's words and actions match one's thoughts and feelings. It's a big task for most humans mm-hmm. is, is to have all those match. But when they match, so when you stay present to your, fully present to your experience, like I've been talking about, so you're in the awareness mode, you're in touch with what's going on, you're acknowledging it, you're trusting it, that, again, foundation. And then when all the other things match, thoughts and feelings, words and actions all match, then one feels congruent. That's, again, foundation of confidence. And it is also the foundation of inner peace. Which is a totally different pursuit of happiness than I'm going to buy them more gifts and I'm going to take them on vacation and I'm going to give them more electronics. And Right. Right. It has nothing to do with that. There's a state of contentment. When one is congruent, right? That's the, that's the that's the mostly everyday state, and then when you adopt attitudes that help you be resilient and help you sustain that, then then everything changes. So that you're living, you can live on a day to day basis, uh, almost always, or pretty frequently. I don't, you know, it's it's a high it's a high proportion or high percentage, uh, that you can live in that state of inner peace. And that's that, in my world, is happiness. So it's not an external pursuit. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, the, it's the beingness. It's, it's, how, it's, it's how we be. You talk yeah. about this notion of emotional strength, and emotional strength as being part of uh, confidence. I think sometimes we we watch individuals and we think, oh, they're so emotionally strong. And uh, to be honest, your your work has actually put that sense of planted a sense of doubt in me as to whether or not they're faking it or they're actually uh, feeling emotional strength. Can you describe what that emotional strength looks like for real, not the fake it till you make it kind? Emotional strength again. I, I this came out of watching how much or watching listening to how, how much people pushed off um, asking for help. And again, this idea that people didn't feel capable of handling life. Mm-hmm. So the two most important elements for me around this is that understanding first that being able to experience and move through those eight unpleasant feelings that I mentioned earlier is the crux of feeling capable. And, and, and it is the thing that people need to feel capable in life or to capable of co-creating or dealing with life and, and handling what life throws at us. So again, that the capable it has to do is all internal and it has to do with your capacity to experience and move through those eight unpleasant feelings. That's capability. That's, that's the first part of emotional strength. 
The second part of emotional strength has to do with actually being able to lean on others. And what I experienced, and and again, on a day-to-day basis, I could experience this, is that people don't want to ask for help. We've been socialized to think that that's a reflection of weakness. And it's not. It's, it's, I think of it as, um, it's, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of our humanity. I so love it's, that. A sign of, it's a sign of our humanness, not, not of weakness. And that, uh, and uh, you can think of how many people talk about it as being a burden or that they're weak or, and so for me, it was, how do I, how do I get people to understand that asking for help is actually strength? And, and it is, it's our, so we're, we're designed, our humanness is designed to both pursue things independently and then to be a kind of a we. So that's a me. And the other part is for us to be a we, which means leaning on others. And it's not one or the other in life. It's actually both. So <clears throat> I'm inviting people to, um, to welcome their dependent side of their nature and be more willing to turn to others. And to ask for help and be able to uh, to do that and understand it's actually complimenting others when you ask. And that that second part is actually the asking for help is the second part. So it's being resourced. The first one is being capable, handling the eight unpleasant feelings. The second part of emotional strength is being resourceful. And that's asking for help. My thing around anxiety is that it's it's a statement that is way too vague. And if I were to ask 10 people what they meant by anxiety, I would typically get eight to 10 different answers. So it doesn't work for me. And, and so the, I break it down. So for me, anxiety is a cover for the eight unpleasant feelings. And not only is it a cover for the eight unpleasant feelings, it is also um, another way to look at it is that it is a, the lack of experiencing and expressing feelings. So the first word that I would invite people to use if they're looking at the uncertainty of 2021 is to say that they're vulnerable, not anxious. So vulnerable is one of the eight. Right. Or vulnerability is one of the eight feelings that I talked about or feeling states. And so that the, so and what I'm, what do I mean by vulnerability? It's the sense that you could be hurt. Well, that's what we all experienced in 2020. It's not that we were anxious. It's that we got way more in touch with our vulnerability. Right. And so that's 2021. Let's go into 2021 going, all right, vulnerability is the thing that I need to handle vulnerability. Well, then how do you handle vulnerability? Believe it or not, you handle the other seven feelings. Hmm. So to be able to negotiate vulnerability means being capable of handling the other seven feelings. This feels like a lifetime of work. <laughs> I think yes. <laughs> Inconvenient it's truth. It's not. No, it's not. It's it's actually well, again that that's that we naturally have these feelings. It's not like anybody listening to me hasn't experienced all eight of those feelings in their life before. I know they have. Right. And they're here to tell it. So they've already they already know how to do it. They might not like it, but they already know how to experience and move through unpleasant feelings. As messy as it feels and as messy as it sounds. Except the more you welcome the whole range of what you experience, the easier it becomes. So that's a one piece of going into 2021 is to drop the word anxiety. Understand that that 2020 uh, sensitized us to being vulnerable. And let's go into 2021 and beyond 
understanding that when we can ex- move through experience and move through that experience of vulnerability by understanding what it takes to do that is to handle the other seven feelings, then we can approach life in a whole different way and turn those blaming experiences of, well, that was horrible, into I'm going to face adversity and go, I got this. Bring it, bring it on. I mean, don't bring the bad stuff on or do limit that for me. Thank you. Um, but but I'm I'm in and I'm I'm ready to go. I'm it's okay for me to be vulnerable. And when I can be with my vulnerability, that is actually when I'm at my greatest strength. We really didn't get the right message, you know, growing up. Um, if we thought that, you know, our our best life was going to happen by trying to be somebody else. Right. You know, role models can be very great. They can inspire you. They can get you started on a path. But at the end of the day, you have to have a model for that intrinsically that is really going to make sense for you. And chasing anything other than that formula just doesn't result in happiness, which doesn't result in success. Believe it or not, happiness and success, I think, are kind of the same thing um you know how that manifests in people's health if they're chasing the wrong goals or or they're valuing the wrong things because they don't actually know who they are um yeah it's the imposter syndrome because you're literally an imposter you're not you're not you're not getting the point the point is being you and just doing you to the best of your ability like that's it that's all You know, if anybody really peels back the layer on perfection, you see that it's a a race that you will never win. Um, What I like to teach my clients about that is that, um, yeah, like if you're a perfectionist, that's um, that's a goal you never reach. Therefore, that's proof that you need for your confidence that you're never getting. You're always feeling like a failure if your standards are so high and impossible that you can never make them. Um, yeah. And, and also it keeps you on the sidelines when your brain is, is doing its job, keeping you safe and alive, trying to gauge how, how decisions are going to play out. Um, and it says, well, can I do this perfectly? Cause perfection's a goal. And, and the read on that is, is no, I can't do it perfectly. Then guess how many opportunities you bow out of, right? Guess how many times you don't opt to jump in the ring or jump on the field or jump, you know, into that business opportunity or put yourself out there for fear of being, of not being perfect. So perfection is absolutely a losing strategy. It just in the long run, uh, you, you know, you see it with health and we've talked about how that shows up in your practice. Um, yeah, but for me, it's the fixed mindset and I'll call it out as soon as I sniff it in the room. Um, I can I can read it from a mile away. It always shows up in the language, like I said, and it's something that I immediately go gunning for because I know I got to open up that brain and I got to get it into more of a growth mindset so that it, again, is starting to, yeah, just generate the more expansive thinking that's going to lead to more opportunities to achieve their goals. Do you have a consistent evening routine? And if so, can you share? Uh, yes, I'm a huge, huge fan of unpacking my day. At the end of the day, I make sure I'm listen, I wake up with a little girl. I got to get her all ready for school and to school. And then I'm in the, in the chair with clients and I'm knee deep in their experience all day. You know, same thing with Brooklyn on the backside. 
I just think the discipline of making sure I take time to actually honor my own experience and unpack it. Um, I know some people like the five minute journal. Um, I, I love an app I use called iMood Journal, where I'm just able to get in there and just do exactly what I just told you I do with all my clients, unpack those red flag emotions, see where limited beliefs are hiding out behind them, seeing if there's a little work that needs to be done so I can be intentional for the next day. But that is absolutely my my nightly uh, mental gym routine and, and discipline. So brilliant. Fiction or nonfiction? What are you reading right now? I got referred uh, to an awesome book. I'm really enjoying on my runs. I listen to the audibles, you know, um, but uh, by a client, it's called The Power of Full Engagement. And I believe the author's name is Jim Lore. And it's just so up my alley. Um, you know, this is what I teach people, right? Is the power of being in the peak state and fully showing up, getting the most out of things. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting some really helpful uh you know, tips and tricks to add to my repertoire. What is the one thing you're most consistent with, with respect to your health? Definitely my workouts. I, I, I'm a former professional uh, hockey player. And so that discipline has really served me well in my life. It's a discipline that's never gone away because I, as a high performance athlete, got to see just how much that feeds me in all the other areas of my life, it helps me manage You know, I've got Crohn's disease, so it helps me manage that. It helps me manage, um, just fully showing up and being energized all day with my clients and my daughter and my, you know, my work at my workouts feed me. It's like, uh, yeah, it's a formula for me even making better, you know, dietary decisions. So that's just number one for me, six workouts a week. That's my, my commitment to myself. And that's one that really has a positive ripple effect in all the other areas of my health. So amazing. I know. And I watch you live that. It's amazing. I love how authentic uh, you are. And when you're talking about these things, like you are truly doing, you're truly doing them. There's no, there's no imposter here. Like you're living this. What is something totally badass about you that people would not otherwise know? Um, well, how do I choose? There's so many things. Uh, something badass about me is I started playing hockey again. I jumped into... <laughs> Uh, I got called up by some ex uh, pro teammates of mine saying, Oh, we need a couple extra bodies last winter. And, and I went into it and uh, not knowing that it was actually going to be a whole bunch of uh, <laughs> current like Olympians and pro players. And it was a little out of this mom coming out of retirement uh, league, shall we say. Um, but uh, it's been the most amazing experience for me, total childlike state. It's amazing how you just kind of time machine right back into it even uh, even though i haven't played in over a decade it's crazy but uh that's pretty badass you know i separated my shoulder mm-hmm. playing a couple, <laughs> a couple and you just carried on you just kept seeing people and there are no excuses you just kept going it was amazing yeah i think that that's pretty badass and last question for you entrepreneurism are we born this way or do we learn to become entrepreneurs it's a tough question. Um, and I feel like maybe throughout the years, I've kind of bounced back and forth. My experience, I grew up with an entrepreneur. So sometimes I feel like it was in my blood. Um, some of it was just the fact that I had that as a role model um, and being exposed to that, uh, those belief systems of what if and the possibilities that come with entrepreneurship. Uh, but I also now in my practice as a high performance coach, working with a lot of entrepreneurs, um, I can see that there's a very specific skill set that can be trained. Um, there's a very specific mindset 
that can be trained. And so, yeah, I think if, if you're somebody who is aware of the fact that you have some sort of purpose that needs to be shared in an entrepreneurial way, I feel like that's enough. And I feel like a lot of the other stuff can be trained. I love that people are going to want to follow up with you. Susan, where can they find out more about what you're up to? You guys can come find me, um, hang out at my website there, elitehighperformance.com. We've got an awesome quiz that I want you all to take immediately following this podcast. Are you a high achiever or a high performer? Uh, I think that that is a wonderful starting point for anybody who's curious to learn more about how to engage with uh, the high performance coaching that I offer. And uh, yeah, there's also a, a community page on Facebook called The Mental Gym where I'm really just trying to interact with all of you and hear about what aspects of brain training you want to learn more about so that I can hit you with that specific um, training. And uh, yeah, you can find me on Facebook there. Well, Susan, thank you so much for being here. As a psychologist and a clinician and as someone who has uh, obviously really profound insight into their own human experience, what do you think this is going to leave us with as a society and as a collective responsibility in terms of needing to manage on on the backside of this social isolation experiment that we have been involved in? I, I, my hope is that people will, and they're not yet, but I, my hope is that people will understand the the profound importance of other human beings and begin to value others in a more precious and thoughtful way and that would that would be a hope um we, there's a, a, a there's been a um a major rupture and a major tear in our human fabric and uh, so I, i'm trying to, to 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 do this as politically sensitive as i can but i can't ignore um pitting human against human Mm-hmm. And that that is the one of the most damaging things uh, among many, unfortunately, that uh, that I've uh, all of us have borne witness to. And and we, the, coming into 2021, probably one of my biggest invitations is for people to understand that our separation is a myth. There's not any one of us that enters this world or leaves this world a different way. We all enter it and we all leave it the same way. We're from the same fabric. And when we can, when we can adopt that and live from that place, then our whole, our whole human experience can change. So healing the, healing the rupture that we're different and, and being able to come together is such a crucial I mean, that's that's part of the healing is is looking at 20, 2021 and beyond as an effort to do that. I really love how you put that, because I was I was going to ask you as clinicians and as leaders and as innovators uh, in this audience, what do we need to be aware of as we walk into this new year? And you you really summarize that uh, so eloquently that we have different experiences and yet so much of we have more, but we have more commonalities uh, likely than we do differences. And there's a huge opportunity to start to focus on that. Right. Right. It, it's a, it, it really is about our shared humanity. And, yeah. and if, until we, and that's the, that's the big message we all have to get. 
and and when we collectively can do that, then all our resources go to tackling the real challenges in front of us, as opposed to pitting my energy against your energy. Right. So it's not it's not about it's not about being in competition with each other or thinking one of us is better than another of us. Um, but it's 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 being able to come together and to go, all right, let's put all of our energies towards the bigger challenges we all have. What do you do yeah. for fun or play? Uh, I love playing cards, love playing cards. So very social activity. I grew up with it. And. Uh, so, so board games and cards and things that bring people together in, in, in really nice, comfortable ways is one of the things I love. Okay, I love it. We're going to compare board games another time. Awesome. And last question for you. Entrepreneurism, are we born this way or do we learn to become entrepreneurs? It's both. It's both. I think there's probably some genetic com- component to, to the measure, of, like risk-taking kind of things. Um, but a lot of it is learned. There's a lot of entrepreneurs that become entrepreneurs um, because of, they grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. Um, there's also a number of them that that become that way because they grew up in very difficult life circumstances, and 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 sort of said, "This I'm never going to let this happen again." Um, and and so that they then they want to take the lead and not have the forces of life, if you will. Um, define so that they they go forward and so that's that's socialized so I, I i think it's a combination a little bit of a combination of both i love it spoken like a true expert into the human <laughs> psyche dr joan rosenberg you have so much wisdom and insight where can we direct people so they can learn more about your work uh dr joan rosenberg.com uh, there's also gifts there if they want to uh, download stuff. In fact, if they put drjoanrosenberg.com backslash or forward slash gift, then they can download the things. There's countless uh, other work that's on that on those pages. Uh, and if, frankly, if they punch in my name, on the, they may see a LinkedIn learning course. They might see my TED Talks. They might see a bunch of podcasts, et cetera. So, um, so it's... It's I'm I'm available if you just kind of put my name into the internet, into the Google, into the Google, into the search. Yes. Amazing. We will hook everyone up in our show notes. It's been a pleasure. Like always. Thanks so much for being here. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact.